I like for a while I was just looking for any excuse to chop down a tree. This was like the story of my childhood. I was like, I was like, I love fighting. Who's gonna fight me? I love chopping down trees. <laughs> what tree needs chopping? <laughs> like, just totally superfluous. You you were like an aspiring lumberjack, even such an early age. Like, <laughs> yeah, I finally realized that I could just wear the shirts. This is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where you labor all day trapping game and digging tubers just to scrape together enough energy so you can wail on the tuba in your grand apocalyptic marching band. I'm your host, Nina. And I'm your host, Nat. And today we're talking about two classics of YA survivalist fiction, Hatchet by Gary Paulson and My Side of the Mountain by Jean Craighead George. Along the way, though, we got to talking about another book, Into the Wild by John Krakauer. That's a nonfiction book about a real boy in the woods that's actually pretty tragic. Its subject is Christopher McCandless, who died while trying to survive alone in the Alaskan wilderness in 1992. Yeah, and we're mostly going to be talking about Into the Wild on our next episode, which is in two weeks, where that's going to be the main focus of our conversation. But we wanted to mention it right here at the outset because Nat and I both got pretty obsessed with the book and it's probably going to come up. In the meantime, though, we're going to be talking mostly about the two YA novels And I think one of the things that came up in the course of our conversations back and forth as we got ready for this show is just this awareness that, like, even though these are survival narratives that sort of ostensibly it's just, you know, man versus wild or boy versus wild, as the case may be, and it's not really taking place in the context of this wider societal collapse, at least not in the books themselves, there is this sort of, like, context that's around them, which is the context of, like, the genocide that makes it so that these are, you know, ostensibly empty wilderness, um, just there for these boys in the woods to inhabit. And so we kind of wanted to start out by just acknowledging that these stories take place in a post-apocalyptic landscape, which is the landscape of upstate New York in the 1950s, or of eastern Canadian wilderness in the 1980s, which is when Hatchet takes place. And upstate New York, where Sam has his adventures, is Haudenosaunee land. There are Haudenosaunee people living there now. There were Haudenosaunee people living there in 1950. But Sam never meets any, and he has this idea of, you know, the farm sand as, like, his and, like, his family's back forever. And that's only possible in the context of genocide and, you know, things like George Washington ordering the complete massacre and destruction of the Haudenosaunee during the Revolutionary War. So we just wanted to kind of put it out there and we'll, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about how that's kind of informing the whole idea of freedom in these books. But we did want to give you that context before we get started, because I think it's really kind of underlying how we're thinking about these books as post-apocalyptic and how we're linking the ideas about survival that are in them to the ideas about survival that we see in some of the other narratives that we're talking about. All right, so now let's get started with My Side of the Mountain. In My Side of the Mountain, Sam Gribley, a young boy from the 1950s Lower East Side, leaves his crammed apartment and sailor dad and long-suffering mother and hitchhikes to the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York, where his family still owns a piece of wilderness, a farmstead called Gribley's Farm that's been abandoned for generations and gone back to the forest Sam gets there and sets up house, living off the land, making friends with the local weasel and catching and training a baby duck hawk, whom he names Frightful, to hunt for him and be his companion. 
Frightful, incidentally, is also gendered female. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Coincidence? We think not. Um, <laughs> so Sam does very well for himself. He literally has a hawk bringing him food. He makes friends with woodland wanderers. He makes gourmet meals out of foraged vegetables and meat that he kills himself. He's he's always thickening his sauces. That's my favorite thing about his menus. (laughs) That he's always like, thicken this with acorn flour because you can't have a thin gravy on your cattail tubers, you know? I know. He's like, he's like, have you seen the movie Ratatouille? He's like that character. Yes. (laughs) I was going to ask you to talk a little bit more about your experience of reading this so many times and the role it played in your life when you were younger. Um, Like, I feel like you said that, like, not only was the narrative meaningful to you, but like you had the book and it was like almost like a charged object for you. Yeah, I read my set of the mountain over and over and over again. And like, for a while, when I was 12, I slept with it under my pillow. (laughs) Like, with my side of the mountain and my axe under my pillow. <laughs> Wait, you had an axe under your pillow too? Yeah, 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 yeah. I would <laughs> I would carefully arrange the blade so that the pillow part was over the blade part. And then I would just sleep with my hand on the handle of my axe. <laughs> I mean, when you were reading this as a kid, did you have a fantasy of going and doing what he did? Like, I want to go and live in the woods at some point. Um, I certainly like fantasized about like trapping and and like finding my own food and like I was like deeply enchanted by Sam's recipes. It's so interesting like it's making me reflect on my own interactions with that book when I was a kid Um, which were very different from yours but I was also really into that book and I feel like the reason I was so into it was because of the the narrative around training Frightful to hunt food for him. Mm-hmm. And for me, like, the idea of going out in the wilderness and finding an animal companion, I don't know why I was so into the idea of having, well, I guess it's, like, not that hard to analyze. Um, if you've been following my story, <laughs> I was pretty isolated as a kid. and. Wilderness wasn't exactly something that felt exciting because I think I often had the sense that I was going to be dragged off into it and didn't really want to go because it represented more awayness and more isolation and more more days where there's no contact with anyone or anything except the the interior unit of my nuclear family. But the idea that out there in the woods, there might be some experience of intimacy and companionship was incredibly compelling to me. Yeah. So I think I just never was like particularly interested in the idea of being awesome at being in the woods. I I think I was just really into the idea of like tiny little gnomes showing up and being friends with me or an animal coming up and like spontaneously bonding with me and that we would have like a life bond or Mm. that makes so much sense that like for you the woods were not freedom like the woods were like compulsion (laughs) like which is a totally different like the the space of the woods in my side of the mountain is a space of awareness that's like 
belongs to Sam. And and a big part of that in that book means this kind of companionship you're talking about. Like I, I'm I'm really interested in the way that Frightful gets described in My Side of the Mountain because, you know, like yeah, like for sure she's a she. Um and then the way that Sam talks to her kind of it it shifts between like a lover and a daughter and a pet, really. Like you know, in a, in a way, like he's her mate, you know, like she hunts for him and he's also her child. She feeds him. (laughs) And then they also have this complete power imbalance in their relationship because she's his pet. Right. And she can't be free because she's not a wild bird and she'll be, you know, the, the book says this explicitly, like Sam is afraid of her escaping because she'll be killed by another female falcon. Yeah, I mean, it's just so fascinating how much she takes care of him. Like, just you're saying how many different roles she plays in his life in the book. And I don't know, for me, that's just like, you know, I think sometimes what comes up in the like desire for masculinity is the desire to have that kind of caretaking be lavished on you. Yes. She's just so emblematic of that kind of caretaking that's earned by this particular performance of masculinity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I can definitely see, like, looking at it from that lens, that it's just very much around a a desire to be taken care of and seen and sort of um, unconditionally loved. And it's, it's both, like, highly idealize in a masculine sense but then like the femininity ideal is really on display there too because it's like mother lover you know pet like she's everything you know (laughs) yeah i mean i think that there's something incredibly appealing about like the idea of getting to have all of that and even the idea that i'm saying have it all shows you how much of a like heteronormative sort of underpinnings are there in that relationship Yes, yes. I mean, that whole idea of having, I think, is also, like, so central to my side of the mountain. One of the things that has always, um, has always kind of stuck in my mind, I think, when, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't understand why, like, why, like, this sort of entity of Gribbly Farm as, like, it's this place on the map, right? Like, Sam's great-grandfather, had this claim in in the wilderness of the Catskills and he tried to make a go of it as a farmer. Then he decided he didn't like it. He went to sea, but the farm still belongs to the family, right? Like, so the whole thing is kind of based on this mythology of ownership. This book is in general interested in kind of creating some brackets around this experiment adventure that like keep it from being a rejection of society. He goes to the woods because he wants to be alone and he wants to be competent. And I think there's something in there that lights up for me when you're talking about that relationship with Frightful, because even though he is doing something that in a different context might look like a rejection of modern society, it's it's all predicated on the like legal basis of modern society, right? He's not trespassing. Right. <laughs> The point you're saying about, like, it's not his, like, I mean, there's very much this sort of white sense of just showing up and getting to do whatever you want to do, which 
in this case, there seems to be this ineffable pang of yearning to like be at one with nature or whatever. But I think that there's a mythology around boyhood as this longing. I I think in these narratives where it's like, you have that feeling and then like, you get to go do it then, you know? And in my side of the mountain, there's an enabling situation that like not only makes it possible for him, but it makes it possible within the confines of like normal, normative cultural um, rules. Like he's literally on land that his family quote unquote owns. And to me, that's like representative of how like in real life narratives where, or real life situations where this actually happens, there's also these kind of like, normative enabling forces that make it so people can go do this kind of colonial inhabiting of areas that they say are in their minds, like open wilderness that, you know, are, are for everybody. Like nothing goes wrong for him. Yep. You know, he sews things together with hide and grass. And I definitely tried that as well when I was a kid and it is not easy. <laughs> so- <laughs> Like, you cannot catch a snapping turtle with a hook made of grass. <laughs> Does not work. Dude, th- the whole thing about catching a snapping turtle, too, is snapping turtles are really dangerous. Like, if you if a snapping turtle, like, comes to mess with you, they can bite off your finger. Like, they're, they're not to be messed with. And so the idea that he's just sort of, like, catching and eating sla- snapping turtles randomly. He's got a snapping turtle sled. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's I, I I have to admit I I love some of those things though like yeah. like little devices like the snowshoes and like all the silverware like I was very very much a fan of that that makes me feel like in fact this book is not a survival book it's a it's a book about homemaking oh it, it, domesticity in the wild yeah. It's this fantasy about, and I, and I, in some ways, like, I think maybe that's like gender wise and gender queer wise. I think that that is a big part of why it appealed to me so intensely. It, it just, it occurred to me when I was reading it this time that, you know, Jean Craighead George is a woman writing a boy and that there's a way in which this woman writing this boy got at some of the like interminglings of gendered cultural information that appealed to me as a kid and like really kind of got me (laughs) when I was a child, you know? hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I I was just like totally vibing off of this now, like thinking about my own history with this type of stuff. Like I loved the idea of homemaking out in the woods. Yeah. There was actually a book I remember reading, and this harkens back even to like pre YA years, called "The Woodland Folk Meet the Gnomes." <laughs> yeah, that sounds basically just like, "Hi, Nat, we wrote a book for you." <laughs> I know. I mean, I really do think that like part of my gender is just like identifying as a gnome, but like it was like really great. Like they live out in the woods and they make all kinds of fun little objects out of stuff in the woods, like baskets and plates and mushroom tops are useful for things. And it's just like, I don't quite know why it has that gender queer feeling to it. Like, I I feel like I need to talk about it more, but that's the same exact feeling it has in 
my side of the mountain, like cross pollination of masculinity. And, and then it's like, there's a cute little home. <laughs> I don't know. I think to some extent it like sort of is about quelling this, the existential angst that children have about whether they would be okay without their families. Yeah. But I think there's a thick layer of just like pleasure in turning one thing into another, like fixing a problem. I mean, that's still kind of one of the greatest pleasures in my life is like, you know, jerry rigging things, making them work, you know? Yep. Yep. I have a really similar sense of absolute pleasure and joy in that. And generally being somebody who has a lot of manual dexterity, um, for me, a lot of the ways I access the idea of self-sufficiency and competence comes from being able to form something using my hands. And the idea of being able to form a, a place that feels safe in, you know, like a wilderness or a woods where you would maybe ordinarily feel threatened and alone and in danger you know, that's just an incredibly appealing idea to to entertain, especially when you're younger. Right. Like the idea that you could just be safe. Because of you, right? Like you would make you safe, right? Like yeah, you have competence and skill and you can rely on yourself to manufacture things. Right. Yeah. And going back to the sort of, I think, some of the, like the ways in which whiteness is operating, um, and patriarchy is operating. When I read these books as an adult, I really see the whole apparatus of like caretaking that the whole world is doing for Sam, you know, like the guy who gives him a ride and drops him off. And, you know, he never mistakes the the edible fruit food for the poisonous food. There's just, there's enough all the time. It's like nature in, in my side of the mountain. And I think in Hatchet too, it kind of like performs the role of like privilege in terms of structuring a world in which survival is easy and this sense of safety is like the sense of being able to be safe in yourself is sort of falsely created out of a world that where actually like invisibly so much is being done for you and so much is kind of like going right. <laughs> I know. I mean, there is the idea that nature is taking care of these characters people who show up along the way are taking care. And then if you want to get meta about it, which I know I always do, it's like the feeling you get from the book is the narrative is going to take care of this protagonist and, you know, bad things will happen to provide sort of a, an up and down so that the story is interesting, but there's never going to be a moment of tragedy you know, devastation, being punished for doing the wrong thing or for being the wrong race or for being queer, which is something we've talked about with some of the other uh, media. You know, we you kind of know that the narrative is not going to do that with this character and that it's going to be this experience of like being held. Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually, we, I think we should really get a little bit more into this idea of colonialism because- I feel like there's a framework like that I'm bringing with me when I come to these books that I'm not sure just any, like everybody listening to the podcast will have in their minds. You know, one of the questions I think one might have looking at like, like colonialism, which is predicated on going somewhere, like generally slaughtering everyone, um, whether it's directly through war um, or slavery or 
pestilence or all of the above is what happened in the Americas. Like, how does a culture do that over and over again for centuries and people still wake up in the morning and think, you know, I'm a good person and I am living a good life, you know? Right. And I think a big part of the apparatus of that has to do with some of the um, dividing of the world into over here and over there, into civilized and uncivilized, into like modernity and wilderness (laughs) that a lot of these books are also kind of predicated on. So like when we get, you know, in, in a lot of those like speeches that 18th century and 17th century ministers were giving to their congregations of sailors and, and, uh, and merchants um, who were participating in, you know, making of, of the colonial empire, those speeches were about like, God wants you to do this. We're supposed to be in charge. Also, there's nothing there. There's no one there. The people are not farmers. They don't build things. They don't have a culture. They don't have a language. You know, it's kind of this erasing of everything that's there in order to write the colonizer's culture over it. And so, like, Sam's Sam's mapping of the area as Gribbley's farm, like, he literally goes to the library, asks the librarian to, like, help him find it. She gets out a bunch of maps, and then they find one where it's marked out. Right. And it's like, it's like this act of like doing that mythology where like <laughs> like he takes this land and he's like finds the map where it is what he wants it to be <laughs> he like has his name on it literally he's like he's the Christopher Columbus of the Catskill Mountains i have an interesting related perspective which was the idea of a pure wilderness experience. Mm. I thought about this a lot in all of the books we read, which is this sense of needing there to be a certain level of not having help and solitude and self-sufficiency that, I don't know, has some kind of arbitrary status as being like 100% true nature, 100% true wilderness experience. And I always feel like in these stories, there's a sense of like categorizing, you know, it it has all these notions wrapped up in it of like other people helping you compromising this sort of lone wolf identity that you're earning by doing this wilderness survival experience and absolutely doing everything from scratch. Mm -hmm. Right. Like this idea of like unclaimed territory or getting there first or something like you can just like plant your flag and is kind of related to pure wilderness and like, you know, proving yourself through survival. I, I think that makes so much sense. It, it really, it honestly reminds me of another book, which I'll just mention, because I think it's really the book that is like underneath and behind like all of the narratives that we're talking about, which is Robinson Crusoe, um, which was like the first novel in English. And it describes this guy who, you know, like he doesn't want to do what his parents want him to do for a living. And so he goes off to like the West Indies so that he can, you know, live the life of a free slave owner and plantation owner. And so that's what he does. And then his friends are like, hey, buy us some more slaves. And while he's off doing that, he gets shipwrecked on a deserted island and he has to like fend for himself. And this book is like almost entirely lists of bullets and like kernels of corn and you know with the occasional prayer thrown in (laughs) somehow that's like scintillating reading for a lot of people people went nuts for it in the 18th century when it came out and they go nuts for it now and 
you know, and I think it's, it's another one of these books that's really kind of about this idea of being able to be free because you are an owner, like to kind of, you know, find this land that nobody owns and then have it be remade in your own image. And it really speaks to like what the fantasy of colonization was in the first place for a lot of these Europeans who were coming over and participating in genocide. And obviously it's, you know, much more complicated than that, but people get great pleasure out of reading this book. That's like, just like this guy counting the number of goats that he's managed to breed from like the goats that he had, you know, that he like found on this Island. And like, and I just think there's like an aspect of that. That's, you know, it's almost like imagining like, what would you do if you won the lottery or something? It's, it's sort of this, like, partly it's a fantasy about, about like having, Yeah. So specifically, this idea of inventorying is so fascinating, because it made me think of some of the kinds of strategy games that involve aspects of inventorying and listing and really thinking through like exactly, quote unquote, what this would really be like, even though it is actually leaving out an immense aspect of the the reality of the history and the world that would be in existence around the limited like viewport of a story like this. Um, but that's kind of like what it is when you role play, right? Like you limit down what your attention yeah. is and you focus on these like sort of gamified forces of economy or survival in terms of like one tool and like, you know, three different types of animals that you have to deal with, right? Right. Like every single time you go into a building, there is rubbing alcohol there. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. There's this game called the Campaign for North Africa, you know, which again, reminds me a lot of a a bunch of stuff that you were just saying. Um, But in this game... It has like these gigantic maps and it's like a strategy game that takes like multiple days. Um, The playing time is like, you can play this game for like up to a thousand hours. What? Yeah. The level of detail in this game is, you know, like if you have Italian troops, you have to secure water supplies so they can prepare pasta. (laughs) (laughs) The men's morale is low. They have not had a spicy meatball in weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, it's so crazy that like people think it would be fun to like keep track of like pasta water. Mm-hmm. But it really reminds me of these books because there is this like tabulating yeah. and this like narrow frame where you have resources and a situation of threat or adventure where the resources are almost deployed in this like constrained game-like way by these these sort of power fantasy protagonists. I mean, it, it strikes me that that's like, that's one of the major ways that stakes are laid in all kinds of survival narratives. It's like another YA survival book that I read recently called I'm Still Alive. One of the like ways that tension is built in the book is like, how much of her jar of salmon does she have left? You know, <laughs> it's like, that's a thing about this genre where tension is driven by the like lowering level of fish in a jar. I mean, I think that that's a contrast you can draw between books like this and a book like Parable of the Sower, where that book isn't about like, this is fun. This is a game. That book is about the fact that like being in these situations is terrifying. It's threatening. um, And it is complex. So, an object, a situation, 
a relationship can have multiple simultaneous meanings and outcomes and implications all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, but but this like power fantasy guy like Robinson Crusoe or Sam Gribley um, or you know Brian in Hatchet, it's it's narrowed down into this way where you get what is called in game studies value clarity, huh. um, where everything kind of has like one implication or one meaning. So like the rubbing alcohol, you know, always being there is one aspect of that. But then another aspect is it always does the same thing. Um, right. So we don't have to interrogate the complexity of the situation because like the people who are already there on the land, for example, they're sort of pushed to the outs to the, the margins, the outside of the story and the idea of access or ownership to the land isn't a complex idea in the world of the book. It's just this sort of slate that this um, simple challenge takes place on. Totally. That makes so much sense. And thing, you know, things like all food is food. You know, I think that's one of the things when we get to talking about Into the Wild, like, like that book also includes Christopher McCandless's inventory of the animals that he's killed like his journal at that time you know while he's in the alaskan wilderness is basically just a list of of like small game that he shot and i feel like having read all these books at the same time like one of the things that struck me was that if that list of game was in my side of the mountain like that would be a feast like that would be plenty of food but it's actually not enough to sustain his life and keep him from starving even though he's like killing you know three small game a day it's not it's not enough to like keep him warm and moving around and not burning more calories than he's consuming so yeah so like even something like a squirrel that you shoot has multiple vectors of meaning in in reality that it whereas in a book like this it's just like it's sort of like a point <laughs> i mean even in into the wild there is this exploration toward the end of the book where Krakauer talks about this research he did in into um, the meaning of a specific note that McCandless had left about being poisoned by um, some plant that he had consumed. And Krakauer, like, again, looked into this really deeply to figure out, like, what it was and why he was poisoned. Um, you know, throughout the book, you kind of get the sense that, you know, though McCandless was young and sort of reckless, he wasn't a total idiot of, at all about how to survive in the wilderness. He knew a lot about plants, he knew a lot about hunting, and he had already been living there for a long period of time and become familiar with what he could eat that he might like harvest or dig up. And, right. I, you know, the conclusion is that the seeds he ate were moldy and moldy seeds interacted with his already compromised bodily state in such a way that was dangerous. And that right there is an example of like food isn't just food. Right. Um, you know, you don't just click on it and then like your <laughs> hunger goes down. Like, yeah, as though you have like a little bar overhead that's like your your total hunger or something. It's it's introduced into the chaotic reality of your body, which is unknowable even when it's you, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's so beautifully put. And I think that you know, people were really angry at Christopher McCandless for dying. And one of the things, you know, I think I have complicated feelings about the way that Krakauer responds to this that, that we'll get to, but, you know, but I feel like you're making a really great point that he's kind of grappling with this, like most people's response to McCandless's death that were reading his article in Outdoor Magazine or whatever was like, that guy's an idiot. 
He didn't know how to do it right, which is this sort of claim that there's like one right way to do it. And that way is like to know everything and to, you know, and then things will become simple in this way where if you, you pick the right plant and then your hunger goes down or whatever. But that is sort of predicated on this fantasy that's already like everything has been simplified in it. And I think that goes back to this idea of the narrator that you were bringing up um, as this kind of like almost symbol for or like stand in for like what privilege can do in real life where it can like simplify the chaotic realities <laughs> by like sending them on on this streamlined well-trod path. And in these books, like that's the job of the narrator is to like convince us through these lists that there's a challenge while also really controlling the environment and controlling the idea that food is always going to result in nourishment or that like cleaning your wound means it won't get infected. Yeah. No, I know. It's a really, like, it's a different sense of the idea of purity um, that we were raising. Like, one of the ways I think of purity is that there's, like, pure wilderness and then there's compromised wilderness. Like, a city park doesn't count as wilderness or nature. Um, whereas, you know, if you're hiking out into the bush and you're, like, days away from civilization and so forth, then, like, that's more pure. But then there's this other kind of purity that you're getting at here, which is this pure experience of, of adventure and challenge that isn't compromised by complexity. And I feel like those two things are related just in this idea of wanting things to be simple that are in fact not simple at all. It's interesting to think about the, the two YA books um, as sort of like at different points along that continuum. My Side of the Mountain, I think, is just obviously the most clear example of, like, the whole thing being laid out in this very kind of value-clear way. Everything has a singular meaning, right. and then things are combined and recombined. And there is something really satisfying about that. I thought Hatchet, you know, in spite of, like, the idea of trying to be more realistic about what would happen if you were stranded in wilderness, it still becomes this very distilled down and simplistic like masculinity narrative in the way that the book plays out. Well, I think that the stakes almost in, it's almost like in Hatchet, like the narrator is playing the same game as Gene Craig had George in terms of like, if he catches three fish, he's full, which so similarly, like things have fairly simple values in nature. You know, none of the, none of the predators ever really threaten his body. Like there's just, there isn't that chaos, but where the chaos comes in is mostly in ways that are really directly tied to what I think are actually the stakes, which is like whether Brian is going to become a real man. Yeah. I mean, everything kind of plays in as a device to be answering that question. So in Hatchet, the book starts with a young boy named Brian Robeson flying in a single passenger plane. His parents have just been divorced and custody of Brian has been split between them. So when the book starts, he's flying from his mother in New York State to visit his dad, who's drilling away in the Canadian oil fields. On the journey, the plane's pilot has a massive heart attack. And in the course of his death throes, he pulls the plane off course. And Brian flies for hours, runs out of fuel, and then crash lands in a lake in the northern wilderness, hundreds of miles from where anyone would even be looking for him. So all he has with him are the clothes in his back and the titular hatchet, which becomes a central tool of his survival. And with the hatchet, Brian learns to shelter himself, make fire, fish, hunt, and he generally, you know, masters the wilderness until, like, 46 days or something like that. And one tornado later, he sets up an emergency transmitter and he gets rescued. Yeah, I, <laughs> there's a tornado in that book. 
There's a, there's a tornado. There's a surprise <laughs> tornado ex machina. <laughs> tornado ex machina, man. There's all kinds of those things. There's a moose. He he like almost gets gored by a moose, I think. Moose ex machina. Moose ex machina. <laughs> He, he it's like he encounters one of everything and it's interesting i i was just thinking that um in hatchet the main character there does get punished but mainly for like crying totally oh my god <laughs> i think there's like three or four times when he cries and it's always like so intensely negative i think there's at least one time he, Paulson just describes it, his tears as like wasted tears. <laughs> like, he's just going to have to hydrate now. <laughs> That's right. Like you're losing valuable water. Um, Nina, have you ever seen the Bear Grylls meme? This is a, like a, this is a, I don't know, like an internet meme about Bear Grylls. This British adventurer woodsman guy who had this show called man versus wild at some point i've never seen the show i've only seen the meme um he he like drinks his own pee and there's this meme about how like he'll use any excuse to like have to like drink his own piss so it'll be like oh the sun's (laughs) coming up again time to drink my own piss (laughs) that's like the ultimate in self-sufficiency right like you are your own running water Water. yeah (laughs) I mean, masculinity, you know? I mean, if you cry too much, then you lose valuable water that you could be drinking in your piss. What a waste that that poor, you know, Brian. (laughs) Increasing the concentration of uh, ammonias. Oh, my God. But yeah, I mean, Hatchet is such an interesting comparison to My Side of the Mountain because it is much more of this, you know, tale of danger and threat and... You know, there's definitely a sort of boyhood masculinity story there that's, you know, pretty aggressive. I mean, show you're weak and you'll get gored by a moose ex machina, like. <laughs> which the which the book describes as an insane cow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I really wanted to talk about this. There is a lot of misogyny that I read in Hatchet. I don't know if if you had that read as well, but for me, it was like palpable in the book. It's so intense. This kid hates his mother so much. Yeah. Yeah. So the premise of the book, right, is that the character Brian, his mom has said goodbye to him and he's on his way to spend the summer with his dad. And what he knows that his dad doesn't know and that his mom doesn't know he knows is that the reason she broke up with his dad is that she was cheating. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> so the book begins with like him sitting in this cockpit filled with rage at his mother because she broke up the marriage with his dad and he wouldn't even have to be on this plane if if she hadn't been a loose woman of, of loose morals. Um, <laughs> a loose woman. <laughs> Yeah, it's very much like narrated too, where like there's no context for why why she was having an affair. So it like it's totally like she was overly lusty is the vibe. 
like it wasn't because the relationship was fraught yeah because there's nothing like the dad isn't a character at all there's no like my dad's gonna fly in here and save me it's just like there is no dad except as the person i don't know how to tell that his wife was cheating on him yeah he's kind of a man-shaped blob Mm -hmm. it's clear to me in the narrative that there is a sense that the dad has been like emasculated by this whole fact. And this kid is like horrified by this emasculating moment in his dad's life. And he feels somehow like a collaborator in emasculating his parent. I don't know. I, I, maybe uh, <laughs> like he has the secret and he doesn't know like his father's lost, you know, his manhood in his mind because he's been cheated on. And he, and he's also like, He simply lacks knowledge. Like, that's enough to make you unmanly, right? Right. Yep. He's in the dark about what's even going on. So, like, if he tells him, then he's, you know, having masculinity at the expense of his father. And if he doesn't tell him, then his father remains in the dark. So, you know, what's what's Brian to do? His father is, is now emasculated by this fact, no matter what he chooses. But then there is an alternative that gives him another route to having a meaningful... Bildungsroman moment where he gets to inhabit masculinity in a different way through what is it, Matt? <laughs> he crashes. Yeah. The plane crashes, and he has to survive. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this was like the like Freudian read of Hatchet, but I mean, he hates his mom so much at the beginning of the book, and I felt like. There was this like symbolic level that you could read it on where, you know, at the beginning, she gives him this, this hatchet and it's, it's supposed to be this gift that connects them. And he feels totally humiliated by it and embarrassed to have it attached to him. Right. She's like, put on your hatchet and turn around for me. Show me how it looks. (laughs) Exactly. And like, it's it's this, it, it attaches to his belt. It has some kind of um, sheath situation. I, I don't actually know how it's attached. But um, that's, of course, why it's still attached to him when he crashes, because it's actually like, I don't know, strapped to him. And he's like, totally humiliated by this. And it like, it felt almost to me like this, like symbol of her emasculation of the dad, like, like it's this this like sharp object that's like the device of emasculation. Like I mean, I if you want to get like really psychological about it, it's like she's in, like literally like cut the the dad's penis off with this symbol, um, and then now he's carrying it. Like he's carrying this symbol of the like moment of emasculation this loose woman inflicted on their family unit, <laughs> and. Yep. You know, he turns this this suffering through, you know, into masculinity and arrival through taking the hatchet and using it to sustain his life and survive and become a man and even thrive as like this member of nature um, over the course of the book. <laughs> so like... Honestly, Nat, it is airtight. Like even like because the plane loses its wings on the way into... <laughs> So it's literally like a flying, a flying penis that he's inside of. So excellent. And yeah, so I mean, 
there's a much more serious survival story in Hatchet. And I will say, I think one of the joys of this book is how seriously the author took depicting what it would really be like if you had to survive um, in that situation. Um, and uh, tornadoes and and moose aside, um, I, I really appreciate in Hatchet when he touches on the idea that the kid is swarmed by mosquitoes. Um, yeah. That's very real and like not something that you would think of in a my side in the mountain situation where it's all like, yay, like nature is so kind and benevolent. Um, this is a very right. like, this is a more, you know, masculine nature, actually. It's aggressive and unpredictable and, um, you know, kind of challenging the kid to, like, prove that he isn't weak and so forth. And, yeah. yeah. You know, I think, I think I'm think i kind of of two minds about that. Because I think on the one hand, he, he's kind of, like, stripped down to the hatchet and the wilderness, right? He's got just this one tool, but otherwise he's got to really live with. But on the other hand, whereas I think, I think that that initial scene of sort of stake setting, like where, where Paulson is like, no, the wilderness is dangerous. It's full of bugs. Even the sun, which seeing, you know, feels nice on your face is, is going to burn you. Um, and there won't be any, you know, like Brian is resilient in a way that's unrealistic in terms of how fast he heals from from these injuries. Um, and, you know, like he gets slapped with porcupine quills, but he never gets an infection, um, you know. And, you know, the injuries that he receives are kind of narrative devices, but there aren't real consequences, um, or there aren't consequences that feel realistic to me. And I feel like even more than that, the book places this huge emphasis on Brian's innate ability to know things and intuit them. Like right. I like wrote, wrote down every time the book said Brian like just registers something or just looks at something and and just understands that it can be made to like kill a fish or whatever. And I think it's something like I don't know like 10 times that happens. <laughs> over the course of the book where he just knows stuff like the birch bark is particularly flammable like he just sort right. of looks at it and thinks that looks particularly flammable <laughs> <laughs> no i think that i think you're making a really good point there i mean you know and i think this is the the unease i feel about hatchet is that it seems in service of this kind of disturbing masculine myth making um like, you know, simultaneously kind of abusing the character for being weak and then also insinuating that he has this special kind of capability or intuition or knowledge, the, the emasculation of the dad. Like, there's this constant back and forth between um, yeah. this sort of ugly, weak masculinity and then, like, highly empowered, unrealistically capable masculinity. and. Like to me, that that um, back and forth feels like the like the threat of toxic masculinity that gets p people who exhibit those behaviors in such a freaked out fight or flight state. It's like he's weak if he doesn't know how to take care of himself, and yet the only way 
who take care of himself is by already knowing how to take care of himself. So yeah. (laughs) And I see a contrast there with my side of the mountain where we do see Sam learn and specifically the person who kind of takes him seriously and teaches him the most is the librarian who's a woman, like not just a woman, but a woman wearing heels. But in Hatchet, somehow Brian is supposed to like, like he, like it's weak to learn. Like he has to just have it in him. And, you know, it's weird. I mean, is it possible to write a story like this that ever feels realistic? Or do you think that the fictional frame inherently turns it into something that's always going to let it in as this, like, symbolic reach for whatever wilderness means to the Mm -hmm. author who's putting down the story? I recently read this book called I Am Still Alive, which is another YA survival story where the protagonist is um, a girl and... She has been injured in a car crash, and so she's disabled, and and her body is in constant pain. And I feel like there's ways in which that book is speaking directly back to Hatchet from the place of like a person in a body. And the girl is in the process of healing, but there's no sense that she's ever going to be like, she's never going to like walk the way that she did before she was in this accident. And so... Right. You know, it's not like she's going to go live in the wilderness and then it's going to like make her whole, you know, which of course this, this idea of like wholeness and purity is part and parcel of the whole thing that we're talking about of like wilderness civilization, you know, like that binary wholeness, brokenness. And like, it's a much harsher wilderness situation than any other YA survival book that I've ever read. And yet I think it too, it's a book about fathers. And a book about kind of, you know, that man-shaped hole that the main characters in these books are kind of trying to fill in. (laughs) Yep. Thinking just too about like when the dad shows up in My Side of the Mountain. um, That's such an interesting moment where the dad's there and then Mm -hmm. Sam takes care of him. You know, I've taken up the mantle of self-sufficiency and care and I can take care of you now, father. And the dad's like, okay, cool. See you later. I find that moment so interesting because I mean, the dad character in that, in that book generally is like described as like, he's, he's miserable, you know, like he's been like, he's a sailor and he's like working really hard, but he has eight kids or nine kids or something and he can't feed them all. And he's like, oh, I don't know how my wife does it. Like <laughs> how my wife feeds kids on what I bring home to her. And he has this like longing to get away. And that's what Sam is doing, right? Like, so, so, I mean, in a way it's, it's like a similar situation to what happens in Hatchet in that the father is, is sort of this like normatively inadequate manhood but I don't exactly think it's not so judged in the, in my side of the mountain, or at least it didn't feel that judged to me, you know, or anyway, like what happens there is that Sam does like care for his father in this domestic way. And he like specifically real, like he identifies with his mother while he's doing it. He's like, now that I have like my friend Bando and my dad both staying at my house, like I know how my mother felt when, we brought someone home for dinner and there were already nine people eating. Like, like he identifies with his mother and her role as like caretaker and feeder. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's ways that my side of the mountain is like doing that thing, but it like maybe because it's written by a woman. And so there is like a recognition of the humanity of women and that like women's lives are real. It's not just telling that same story of like dad's inadequate. I did it better. And that's how I became a man. It's like, right. Dad's inadequate. 
and I fed him a delicious dog tooth, violin, onion soup, and I felt really good about myself and understood my mother better. <laughs> yep. Yep. What happens to the hatchet at the end of the book? Oh my gosh. I don't remember. All I remember is the outcome of like, quote unquote, the secret, which is of course the, his knowledge that his mom has been having an affair, yes. which is that he does not ever tell his dad about it. Yeah. He never gets up the gumption to tell his father. What do you think that means for the masculinity story? Yeah, it's a really interesting ending because it has some kind of language that's like he could never bring himself to br- to talk to his dad about it. Yeah. And that grammar is really interesting because it's a lot more complicated than just like, and he never said anything again or whatever. And if it was that much more final, it would be sort of like a triumphal um, moving past but it has this like weird quality of repression or suppression and this sense that like, you know, and he never had emotional resources ever, regardless of the fact that he had this wilderness experience. Right. It's like, and Brian learned how to kill a fish with a fork and how to catch a grouse with his bare hands and get away from a mad moose, but he never learned to talk to his father. <laughs> Literally, that's what it is. Every single one of these narratives has this father that's like emasculated before, you know, like as the sort of like inciting incident of the whole novel, even though like apparently the inciting incident is like your plane goes down in in the, you know, in the like East Coast wilderness of Canada or you're <laughs> or you're alone in upstate New York or whatever. Like the actual inciting incident is like your dad's inadequate. So like, what? <laughs> Like, why is the father relationship so central to every single survival book? Like, and, and, and that actually like goes beyond even these, these like survival in the woods books. Like it's also an inciting incident in the last of us. It's also an inciting incident in parable of the sower. Um, so like, just like, what the hell is with the fathers? So this is not my area of expertise, but I was just reading some theory and, um, we talked about this earlier since I've been reading The Queer Art of Failure by Jack Halberstam. Yeah. Halberstam. And there is a lot of mention in there of narratives being edible. And mm-hmm. I don't know that much about, or I rather I would say I don't typically look at things through that lens, but there does seem to be a thread of telling narratives in that particular way where you have to be like, you know, showing up and like, like murdering your dad or whatever. (laughs) And it's really funny having read it and had that word applied to it because I'm like, Oh yeah. Like all of literally everything we've talked about in this has had that quality. I feel like it maybe is tied back to this thing that we were talking about with the narrator, right? Like, I mean, on the one hand, like if you're going to take care of yourself, then the person who takes care of you ostensibly has to step out of the scene. Right. But, but then why isn't it moms? You know, like why, like why the like greater focus on fathers? And maybe it's because we're talking about sons. So, you know, we want to talk about fathers when we're talking about sons or something. Like, I feel like there's some very like simple sort of obvious reasons, but I also feel like there's something about like this sort of authorial control of like, what is moral, what is good, what is right. Like, like in order to, to know that you are competent, the narrator who controls the stakes of your world has to like 
in some way break down, like has to become invisible, you know, like this isn't quite coherent yet, but like, I, I think it has to do with these maps, you know, like these maps that we've been talking about and this idea of purity that we've been talking about. And the fact that in order for this protagonist to feel like they are actually, you know, earning competency, doing things for themselves, being self-reliant, there has to be like all of the helpers, all of the help and all of the complexity has to be erased, right? The people who were, who, who are there, um, have to be erased. The, like the, the like strangeness and surprisingness of the world has to be simplified. And I think there's something about that fact, like the fact of complexity, um, that is like really threatening to the whole fundamental idea that like masculine control is attainable and self-reliance is a real thing because, you know, I, like I honestly, I'm, you know, suspecting more and more that it's not like this thing that we call self-reliance is, is like really more embeddedness in a system that's functioning for you. And I think that that is so threatening to the myth of like, you can, you can like rely on yourself and that will like be what makes you a man, like have your like wilderness bar mitzvah or whatever. And, <laughs> and like, in order to like allow for that to happen, you have to erase all of the like other, all of the things that would be helping you, you know, all of the, all of the obvious things that are making it possible for you to survive. So, you know, you have to pretend that there is no father. Take for example, many millionaires who call themselves self-made, you know, and, and like that right. means everything. the fact that they were given these massive inheritances or loans or whatever it is. It's like, I think erasing the father is sort of central to like setting up the, 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 the mythology of being self-made. That makes total sense to me um, because it connects with like the way I think about the general idea of wanting there to be an apocalypse the, the idea of wanting to have that narrator is such a powerful motivator for people. And I think, even though I'm critical of it, I think that the reasons for it make sense because of how scary it is when things are complex. Yeah. And you have to think about all these truths. And for a lot of people who have the apocalyptic fantasy, I think that the narrator is the necessity of survival. Everything is filtered through that lens. Everything is value clear because you can put things in order of importance according to how or whether they contribute to you perpetuating your life forward. Right. And maybe, you know, thinking about this question of like, why do these books feel like, feel like they are connected to this idea of like apocalypse and that kind of survival is because I think I think another way that they're connected is that that question, you know, it's not about kill. It's not, it's not a question of like, do you shoot this person or not? But it is this, like, it's simple. It's, it's the same kind of mechanic is going on in terms of what drives the narrative where it's that simplification of the moral universe, because it's about surviving. It's about like, you know, the whole way of moving forward is just about solving a, a series of pu puzzles, how to catch a grouse how to get shelter from the rain, 
that are like definitively solved in this in this step-by-step way and that's the whole focus and there's something like really relaxing about that (laughs) in a lot of ways like I don't know if you've ever seen this um bumper sticker t-shirt or maybe it was a meme originally but it's like a picture of an AK-47 and then the caption is like the hardest part of the apocalypse is going to be pretending I'm not excited yeah (laughs) and and it's like super gross because obviously what the person is excited about it is like shooting other people but um but also i feel like it just like speaks directly to how apocalypse narratives are also sort of like the only way that people who are too like traumatized by their authoritarian dads to believe in socialism can imagine doing land redistribution <laughs> oh my gosh well the way i always read that is that's that way of seeing this same thing that we're talking about is this idea of if the apocalypse happened, I could do whatever I want. Right. And, you know, of course there's a little bit of a, a a blindness there towards the fact that like doing whatever you want usually involves falling along some other structure of organization and governance and, resource distribution you can never get away from the fact that people are going to have be developing some kind of system to figure out how to do it right you're not going to just be like a lone wolf out there doing whatever because that's not really possible right and, um, and whatever system you develop is going to come out of whatever you've been able to imagine so far so it's not like yeah, <laughs> yeah. the idea of i can do whatever i want can have a lot of different meanings depending on who's saying it and in what spirit it's being said yeah completely it's like i can do whatever i want so i'm gonna like develop a bunch of dog tooth violet recipes thickened with acorn flour and hang out with my falcon lady friend or (laughs) i'm gonna do whatever i want and that means like you know i'm gonna go try and force everyone to bend to my will (laughs) you know I pick the Falcon Lady friend, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> Next time on Queers at the End of the World, we'll be talking about Into the Wild, a nonfiction narrative by John Krakauer that describes the life of a young man who lived on the road and died in the Alaskan wilderness in 1992. The subject of Into the Wild really was a person who was looking for a kind of purity in the wilderness. But the book's author seems kind of more interested in survival in the bush, if you know what I mean. This has been Queers at the End of the World. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa, who you can find for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode was La Fin des Ericotes by Tintamare. You can find us at QueerWorlds.com or at QueerWorldsPodcast on Instagram. If you enjoyed the show, we would really, really appreciate it if you'd rate and review us. It helps people find us, and it lets us know that you're out there listening. And tell a friend who you think will enjoy it. That's by far the best way for folks to find out about the podcast. Part of the point of all this is for us to talk to our community, so we'd love to hear back from you. If you're a queer person making apocalyptic and dystopian media, and you have something you'd like us to read, watch, play, or listen to, or you just have a great idea for a topic we should cover on the show, get in touch with us at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. All right. Good luck out there, dear hearts. <laughs> <laughs>